for some of you have been more steeped in the Vipassana world, some of this is like, what are you talking about? So that's kind of cool in a way, because I think we're discovering things together and learning together about various things. One thing I just want to clarify is, I forgot, what was your name again? Stephen. Uh, when Stephen asked about you know, the idea of the self as being God or what have you, remember, that's not the Buddhist view. Okay, just want to be clear. That's the non-Buddhist view of a kind of generic Upanishadic philosophy. So, because that there's, you have some kind of absolute soul, and when you recognize what its true nature is, i.e., that it's God, for example, in later uh, versions, then you that is what's going to help you become free, because you're seeing what it really is, right? And that is not the Buddhist view. The Buddhist view is that there's no such thing that could be. I don't, you know, forget about God for the moment, just the idea that there's a thing that I could say is really God or really electricity or whatever, that thing isn't even there. Because that thing has these qualities which are impossible qualities. Okay? The key thing here is that these are not... Another we could put in this list is it's singular. It's a singular thing. A unitary thing. Okay? So, let's just consider the idea of there being a permanent self. Why is that impossible? What's that? Because of impermanence, yes. But can we get a little more specific? Let's say there's a permanent self. Well, your permanent self, my permanent self is going to like fly out of my body. Some of you will see it. And uh, it'll go, you know... So let's say a permanent self that is an experiencer. Why is that impossible? Yes, but why would it be... Let's say I'm going to say that there, I have a permanent self and it is the experiencer of all my perceptions. Why is that impossible? Because Not just like... Maybe it sounds weird, but like, why is it logically impossible? Because a permanent, unchanging self couldn't have an experience that would, in a sense, change it, because to have that experience would be a, a, a change. Okay, so it couldn't. It has to, it that, yes. Did yes. everyone get that? We could restate that a little another way. If I, so I'm, everybody look here. Now look over here. Right? You see two different things, right? So that means this changes. Experience involves change. The self has to come into different states, into relationship to different things, different, different sensory stimuli. And if it's permanent, it would either always see this, which would probably be very disturbing, or, <laughs> or it would never see it. Well, that's a whole other question, you know. Don't worry about that. But, uh, but the, uh, uh, the, uh, but yeah. So a permanent self could not see anything because to see is to change state. From seeing this to seeing this, from hearing this to hearing this. So a permanent self can't change. It can't change state. Therefore, it cannot. Part of the change would be coming in relationship to new objects. The essence of having an experience is actually change. change. Yeah. But right? I mean, what about like the analogy 
So does the change does the screen does the screen so this is actually almost uh, like the Sankhya there's a, a school that the Buddhists debated with called the Sankhya and they were really into this idea of a permanent you know self type of thing and they instead of a screen they said there's like a jewel it's even better like a hologram kind of thing you know and it projects in there and then the self just kind of passively receives this but the problem of course is that you still is so if the self is the screen either the screen is being affected by what's projected on it or not if it's not being affected by what's projected on it then it is in a sense inert to what's being projected on it so how could it be knowing that because it's not interacting with that if it is uh, 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 coming into relation what's projected on it then it's changing because that projection is changing right you get that So now you're on to the very critical question that we're going to come back to later, which is whether we can talk about there being something that is actually in some sense non-fluctuating, or maybe that shouldn't use the word, we'll just say unchanging, constant, which is consciousness itself. Right? This level will say no. That the only, because, so one way of thinking about this is, let's suppose we have like, Let's imagine that the unchanging consciousness is like your core consciousness. And then there's perceptual consciousness kind of happening, and that's all that's fluctuating, right? Clearly, your sensory consciousness is fluctuating. So the question is, does this core consciousness know what's happening or not? If it knows what's happening, then it's coming into relationship with all those fluctuations, if it's coming into relationship with the fluctuations, it has to change. Because, like, there are different fluctuations. So first you're seeing this, then you're seeing that, then you're seeing this, that. If it doesn't come into relationship with the fluctuations, then it doesn't know anything. It doesn't actually experience anything. So that's a pretty bad candidate for who I really am. I am, in it, and certainly it's not going to be a good one for like the controller part. It's like there's a you know a blind, deaf, and dumb person. What is that? That you know, pinball wizard. Like there's a you know, somebody like, <laughs> you know, like in, the person in charge can't see, can't hear, but you know they're still in charge. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Yes, definitely. You are not the. You are not. There are not. There is no owner of the karma. Because the owner of the karma would be, let's say, the person from a past life and the person in this life. That's one. There's like one person, 
that real who you really are, and they own the karma. And it's the same person, right? From past life to this life. So that means they haven't changed. Now we're back to the same problem. Yeah. At least how I am right now muddling through this concept in various forms that is being discussed. Which is like not so much owner in terms of the fixed concept of an owner, more experiencer in terms of the joint experience of your ability to perceive and your interaction with you know, the fact that the perceiver and the perceived experience is one thing, right? I think we're agreeing on that. Like the, you know, the gut interaction is constant and fluid and constantly giving birth to another temporary moment and another temporary moment and another temporary moment. And that we are, in any given moment, the, the born of our previous moment's karma, right? That the, like the, the, those little... So what is, let's say, what is the experiencer, what does that word refer to? So is the ability to perceive is the owner of your karma? I mean, I, I guess... Is the ability to speak different than the ability to perceive? I don't think it's... I don't see it as different. So maybe just... So we're going to... What we're going to find... Let me just see. Let's... Uh, maybe let's go forward a little bit here and then I think it's going to answer some of these questions. Okay. There's going to be a different model that the Buddhists are going to propose where you don't need an experiencer or owner of karma or anything like that. Okay, but let's go through this first just to clarify. So how are we going to fix so this? So for now, let's just stipulate, okay, this is the error. This is what we're, we have this deep habit about seeing ourselves in this way, right? And how are we going to get rid of it? So the way, if I think, you know, this is my wife, how do I get rid of that false belief? I see it for what it truly is. I see the not X as a not X, right? So how are we going to eliminate the ignorance? It's just going to show that this mind-body system, which I think somehow constitutes a self, like like it's the parts of a self, or that one piece of it is the self, that particular kind of self, capital S self. Uh, I think that that's the case. So I'm going to look for it in here. All right? And what I do is I'm going to really look very carefully. But one thing that's key here is I have to, let's say, like I do think there's, you know, I like this example of the blue monster in the closet, you know. I think that there's some, uh, some that there's a blue monster living in my closet, so I, f- I have the false belief that my closet is a blue monster home. Okay, so you kind of take me, you take pity on me, you know, and you take me in and you say, "Hey, look, you see a blue monster anywhere?" I said, "No, I guess you're right." And then, 
You know, you come back the next day and I'm sneaking in with like a doggy bag from the restaurant for the Blue Monsters. What are you doing? I said, well, we missed him. He's in there somewhere. So what we need is a completely exhaustive map which leaves no stone unturned. So that's what part of what the Abhidharma provides is a completely exhaustive map, or at least it claims to provide, a completely exhaustive map as the mind-body system. Every possible candidate for a self and also the processes that could together constitute a self are accounted for. And these are called dharmas. That same word that means teaching, it has traditionally you know, at least ten different meanings. Here it means, dharma means element. So there are psychophysical elements. So this is a bundle of causally interacting psychophysical elements. Okay? And we think that this is a self, or somewhere in there, one of those elements, and maybe a few of them together, constitutes a self. And, and the claim is, we're wrong. Okay? So first we need a map. Right? But then also, another thing that's really important is that, let's say you do the, like you draw a map of the class and we systematically go through, and then I still come back the next day and I'm like, you know, got a hamburger for the blue monster. And you say, well, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, you know, I just feel like he's in there somewhere. So just the analysis won't be enough. You have to constant, you have to bring it deeply into your experience to counteract this very deep habit, which you might have called an instinctual habit, to feel like there is that kind of capital S self in there somewhere. Somebody's in charge, somebody's making the decisions. Somebody's perceiving the perceptions. Somebody's the owner of the karma. Somebody is, you know, me. Yes? So in neuroscience, would this be David Chalmers, the hard problem of consciousness? Uh, not exactly, no. Not, not really. The hard problem is really about how conscious experience emerges from the interaction of yeah. neurons. Yeah. But, but, but it's, I'm glad you mentioned neuroscientists because neuroscientists, every neuroscientist I met says, oh yeah, that's what we think. They totally agree with this. Like, there is no controller, there is no experiencer, nobody's in charge. Yet they live their lives as if there is. Yeah, I know, it. yes. <laughs> well, they haven't done the meditation. That's the problem, right? They intellectually know it. And some of them really do also. Like, the worst neuroscientists I work with actually do serious, some of them very serious meditation practice. But... An illusion. Yeah. Well, free will is another question that Buddhists generally don't have much trouble with, actually, because free will is predicated on there being someone in charge in the West. Because the person in charge is the one you reward or punish. That's, free will is all about reward and punishment. It's a theological thing. So if there's nobody in charge, then there's no... Yeah. Yes? Isn't the concept of self necessary for survival? I mean... Uh, every organism, including us, you know, have uh, it, there's a sense of of a purpose, <laughs> and uh, and and inputs and outputs are all designed to keep the organism going. I mean, the the brain is a unifier. Okay, I'm taking all kinds of sensory information yeah. and I'm putting them all together. They've come apart. It's also a filter. And and. And, and that's necessary. Uh, and it seems to me that if you 
uh, have the, according to the Buddhism, correct idea that there is no self, that too could cause uh, dukkha. Uh, so the claim here, okay, so very important to understand right, what is, first of all, what's the problem with the self? There are two, two basic problems. One of them is that we can't make that self happy and free it from suffering because it doesn't exist. The second problem, which is re- very nicely relates to what you were saying, is this is what's driving our existence in samsara, is the thirst to be, to survive. Like, i got to keep this thing going. Right? So that, that kind of, but going in what way? Of like, oh, got to get the good stuff. Got to give it Get the good stuff. So if you want to be a survivor in samsara, a samsaric survivor, be a great game show, but samsaric survivor, <laughs> then it's like, yeah, you want that, you want that illusion of self. But the Buddhists are saying they don't want to play that game anymore. That doesn't mean they want to just die. But here's the important claim. And the neuroscientists would agree with this too. There is no single entity that is the self. But this process, this bundle of stuff, does just a fine job of survival. Well, yes. So what is here? What is here? A process. And what can we... Co- so do we want to call this process? So let me ask you, all right. Uh, does a, uh, a, a baseball team exist? Mm, profound question. <laughs> does it exist? Who votes yes? The Red Sox... Are real. <laughs> Disappointing, but real. No. Uh, uh, so, so, but I, but you know, like if you say, so are the is the are the uh, is the team different than the players? It is. So if I take all the players away, they're still a Red Sox team. So they would they would lose even more games, wouldn't they? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so it's a social. So it's a convention. You know, we know, like, okay, within this certain context, we can say that you know, when you have these, you're playing a game. You got a set of rules. Those people, those nine people together, constitute a team. But none of us think like the team is an entity, you know, that kind of exists transcendentally, right? We know it's a convention. It's a conventional way of speaking. Just like if I say it's 10 yards, in American football, is 10 yards a first down? Yeah? That's why when I, every time I, you know, camp football is really big at University of Wisconsin, so whenever I'm walking down the main hill, every 10 yards, it's a first down. <laughs> Students think it's a little odd, but that's okay. But no, it's not. It's a first down in a context, right? We obviously don't think that every time you go ten yards, you've made a first down. It's a context. So that's the idea of the conventional. So this is a very important idea. Okay, so we're called the two truths. This is going to be key for us going forward. 
So there's the conventional reality and the ultimate reality. Okay? The conventionally real, so this the, at the Abhidharma level of the Sanskrit Abhidharma, which is why we're using the Sanskrit word Abhidharma, not Abhidhamma, right? Of the Vaibhashika and the Sautrantika, those first two schools. They're going to, t- all of the Mahayana schools, and this is not a Mahayana, right? This is Abhidharma. But all of these Sanskrit schools are going to use this idea of the two realities, the ultimate and the conventional. So the conventionally real does not withstand analysis. It can be broken down into its elemental constituents. So that means that this is, this view is what you call a reductive view. It's reductionism. Okay? That's why, who was asking me about emergent entity? Yes, that's why they don't accept the reality of emergent entities. Because emergent entities, on their view, can be reduced to their components. So they are reductionists. The Abhidharmakas are. Anything that can't be reduced further, either physically or conceptually, through analysis, is ultimately real. Okay? So a team, a football team, or baseball team, is a very obvious example of something that can be broken down into components. Right? But we also already know kind of intuitively that it's that somehow, oh, it's just a social convention. But if we take something that seems to be like, you know, what do we call this? A bell bonger? What do you call this? A striker. Thank you. So how many strikers are there here? One? So do you, do you think this is one thing? Who wants to vote for it being one thing? That there's really one thing here. Ultimately, one thing. Really, truly. On this level of analysis, so let's just suppose, we'll just say it's got, we've got the, uh, the N shape, the, let's just say it has just two pieces even. Or maybe that's not the best example. Let me find a better example. Who's got, oh, the flower. That's great. Let's take a flower. Thank you. Perfect. Stephen, so we have... How many flowers am I holding? One. One. That's very good. Sometimes people go, wait, he's trying to trick us. Um, (laughs) So it's got petals, it's got whatever that's called, the stamen, etc. And it's got a stem. So let's just say it's got petals, uh, stamen, and stem, just to make it simple for us. Okay? All right? So it's one thing. It's a whole that has parts, Correct? All right. So is this is the stem? So is the whole the same as the parts, or different than the parts? Yes, but let's do the flower now. Is the is it is the whole flower? Because it certainly we intuitively think that's one thing, right? Is the is the whole is different than the parts? Who wants to vote? Whole is different than the parts. Okay. So I'm going to just take the, uh, these parts and I'm going to put them over here and I'm just going to keep the flower. Makes it really easy to you know, buy flowers for my wife. <laughs> Honey, I got you some flowers. Does, does that make sense? So it clearly does not make sense for the whole to be different than the parts, right? Because just like like I hold this and I hold this, 
I take this away and I still have this, right? Because this is different than this. So this, these parts are different than the whole. So if I take them away, I should still have the whole. Right? Why not? Okay, so the po- so the whole is the whole is the same as the parts. What do you mean by made up of? Well, so you know, you're saying that's a flower. I'm just asking. It's a very straightforward question. Either the parts are the same or different than the whole. It's like you know, either the light was red or not red. It's a simple. It's trying to do non. It's different. It's then clearly that doesn't work. It's not a word trick. We're just asking what the what is I'm really holding. Am I holding one thing or many things? Okay. Is the aggregate the same as the parts or different than the parts? It needs to have a condition of being Is the collection the same as the parts or different than the parts? Is the sum the same as the parts or different than the parts? If it's different, then we have, you know... Clearly different doesn't work. Okay, all right, it's the same. What happens if it's the same? Then this... Forgive me. Do I, am I going to get kicked out? For, okay, this is... The, the, the whole is the same as this, as this petal. It's the same as this petal. This, so that's I, that's a flower. Or alternatively, since this is the same as the whole, and this is the same as the whole, therefore this is the same as this. Right? No. But the potential. You're confusing me. You are confusing us. Well, you- so okay, here's a here's what here's a suggestion, which you might think. Do I have that here? Let's see. Do I have the Bradley problem? Okay, I don't have it, but we'll 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 manage. Um, okay, here's what I think you want: is you want to say that there's a thing that is one thing, because this is one thing, right? It's one thing, one whole, and there are many parts. So you want there to be one thing that is different than the parts but connected to them. So that if you move the parts, you move the whole. Okay? This is like the intuition of the Nyaya school, who went to the point of saying, like the two halves of a, of a, of a, you know, a water jug made out of clay, you have the way they make them, they have two halves and they put them together. So classical Indian water jug... They actually said that when you put it together, it weighed more. Because a new entity came into existence, which was the whole. That was separate from the parts, but connected to them. So that if you move these parts around, the whole went with them. Went with the parts. Okay? So here's a problem. I want you to imagine... I guess I don't have that. Diagram, but okay, we'll see if we can do this. I want you to think about a relation. So, on one end is the whole, like, okay, so we have like, there's this, there's something that's tying the whole 
to the parts. Okay? Something that's tying the whole to the parts. So that the whole is a separate thing, and the parts, the bundle of parts is a separate thing. And then there's a relationship, or maybe many relationships, between the whole and the parts. The W-H-O-L-E. W-H-O-L-E whole, yes. The one thing. The entirety. Okay? The part hover. Part haver. Right? So I have a question for you. Is the relation, let's just consider the whole and this relation that connects it to the parts. Is the relation different than the whole or is the same as the whole? The relation that's tying the whole to the parts, is this relation the same as the whole or different than the whole? What happens if it's the same as the whole? Now it's just like connected to the whole, so now I need something else to connect it to the parts. Well, we are, so we're going to come to what we do, but let's just, let's just try to think about like what we seem to intuitively believe about these things that are holes, things that have parts. Because they're saying they don't, they don't really exist. Okay? There are no such... Tables don't really exist. Chairs don't really exist. So it's our perception that aggregates them. It's our interpretation that aggregates them. Okay? So if if they... We're separating a kind of pre-interpretive perception from an interpretation. There is a way in which you can say even perception is doing some of that conglomeration, but we won't go there for now. Okay? So now, if the, if the whole, this is a relationship that connects it to a bunch of parts, if this relationship is different than the whole, then why do we say it's connected to the whole and not to some other thing? Because it's different from this too. That means we need a new relationship to tie the relation to the whole. Then we ask the same question. Is that new relationship the same as the whole or different? And then we're in an infinite regress. So the idea, this is called Mariology, it's also very, it's a thing in Western philosophy too. The idea that there are things or wholes that have parts is, I think actually in all cases, incoherent as a model. And they, the Abhidharmakas certainly thought that. Okay? So there are no tables. There is no table. The table is, the, is there isn't a single entity there that's the table. If the table is the same as the leg, if it's the same as the parts, then the leg is the same as the table. The top is the same as the table. So that means a leg and the top are the same thing. If it's different from the parts, and you can take all the parts away, and then you know you've got a table. But you don't. Another way I like this is when I teach this in class is you know I say okay, just point to the flower. Anyone want to the whole flower? Just point. That's that's a flower. Really. 
That's a is this is this a flower also? Will you point? Right, and then inevitably, some undergraduates, you know, respond to this by going. <laughs> okay, so. Yes. Yes. But still what? But still, my, I know I'm here. You do? <laughs> well, okay. Is the t- so here's a question. Is the table there? As it is, it's there. It's there. If we understand that the word table is a pradnyapti, a convenient designation to refer to a bunch of different elements interacting in a certain causal way that enables it to, you know, hold up papers and so on. A bunch of psychophysical elements are interacting in a particular way such that it's a human organism. But there is no single thing that is the person there. That's a convenient designation. What's actually there is just a bunch of psychophysical, constantly changing, fizzing elements. Perceptions, thoughts, feelings, sensations, physical stuff going on. Right? So all processes, all that stuff, is it's a bunch of processes going on, but there's nobody there. There's not, just like there's no single thing that is the table, there's no single thing that is the person or the self or anything else. But there is a p- series of processes that are causally connected so that karma is flowing along, the conditioning, the causal conditioning is occurring without there being anyone who is the owner of the karma. Perception is happening without there anyone who is the perceiver. More or less, I mean, like experience, stuff, things that are conscious, things that are not very conscious to us, like subconscious or unconscious to us, right? All kinds of things are happening in this psychophysical system, this process or series of processes. And part of what it wants, you could think of it in these terms, if we step out of Buddhism for a second and we go to like evolutionary science, which kind of goes back to what you were saying, Ralph, which is, you know, the illusion that there's a single thing here that needs to survive, if survival is the thing, that's like, maybe that's a good thing. We give, the organism has this illusion, like, it's me, i got to protect myself. And that that's like, even evolutionarily, in evolutionary terms, you know, instead of, you know, imagine the philosopher mouse, our ancient mammalian, you know, some kind of, ancient uh, predecessor, ancestor, is like, you know, the predators, the, you know, the saber-toothed tiger is coming toward it and said, well, I'm actually a series of psychophysical elements that are, inter- <coughs> you know, that's it. So it's a, but, it, it, well, actually, the thing is, we don't know it's a construct. 
We don't treat it as a kind. We think it is, that feeling is referring to something real. And therefore, it drives us crazy, actually. But it, it also makes us like constantly frustrated because there isn't that thing there that you can actually like do anything with, including make happy or prevent from suffering. It's just this flowing psychophysical stuff. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, they, they actually, those parts of the brain actually interact in really important ways, so the perceptions are, are really conditioned and vice versa by that. But, but those other higher order things are really important for survival too. Like the midbrain and whatever is regulating some aspects of, uh, you know, uh, allostasis, allostasis, but it's not just all about allostasis, right? Yeah. So we got to find food. The midbrain yeah. can't do that. And learning and you know, all kinds of things, especially as a human. So humans are cooperative. We've evolved to be cooperators, so, which means that we're very social. And we can't survive. We literally cannot survive on our own. We have to cooperate with other humans to survive. And uh, so you know, we need very complex social cognition, including a sense of self that's in that, a part of that. Would you also say that even more fundamental than a perception of a self and its needs and its is that's going to be next. Right. We're going to get there next. From an evolutionary perspective. Yes, already. Yeah. That even comes first, right? There's a there's a this and a that. Yes. You know? There's yes, exactly. Self and world. So that's going to be another. La- that's going to come next, or not quite next. We're going to get that. We got to do a little Nagarjuna first, but then we will get there. That's going to be where. That's where non-duality starts to become relevant. So we will definitely explore that soon. Yes. Yeah. Yes, default mode network, yeah. Yeah, so it seems like that's zero. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that's part of it. I mean, it's a, you know, it's not the only thing that's accounting for a sense of self. It's probably mostly about the autobiographical sense of self, which is, doesn't really exhaust all the ways of thinking about self, of our experiencing self. But, yeah, that's relevant. So one of the ways of that this manifests in human behavior, at least, is through that narrative that we that we have about ourselves. What is interesting about meditation is that uh, we are really not into the uh, default network that much when we are in. It depends, but gener- yes, certain styles of meditation definitely seem to inhibit activation of that network. But that would not in itself mean you're experiencing selflessness. Because you can inhibit an experience. We already talked about how you could, for example, just retract from your senses. And that'll certainly turn off mental time travel, which will turn off the default mode network. But you're not experiencing selflessness. It's, you might as well just, we might as well just sedate you. It'd be about the same thing from that standpoint. Yes.
Okay. So, okay, so let's, let's review quickly. So uh, we have a sense of there being a controller, a person that I am that's a permanent, controlling, experiencing, owning entity. And there are two options. One of them is, is that there's a particular one of the... And then, the, and then there's a model, a map of the psychophysical constituents of this, you know, uh, um, series of processes. And, a, and that thorough map is inviting us to look for any particular element that could be a controller, an experiencer, and so on. And obviously one of the best candidates is consciousness itself, but we've already seen that consciousness in order to know to be an experiencer, it has to fluctuate. If it fluctuates, it can't be that kind of self. Right? Also, consciousness, unfortunately, our conscious decisions like, um, I would really like a banana split right now. It just doesn't like make things happen. Or even, I would like to be aesthetically happy right now. It's like, oops, that doesn't seem to control my psychophysical elements. So my conscious decisions don't seem to actually fully control my system, in fact. Right? So it's, consciousness is actually not a good candidate. Then our most basic intuition is that it's the whole shebang. Somehow all of this together is who I am. And this analysis is what this analysis is what is attacking that, right? So that is critiquing that. And we're going to go more over this tomorrow. But this idea that there's, there's this one thing that we call, can call a distributed entity that's the, over the many, okay? And that this is real. And actually the Western tradition tends toward as, uh, uh, oh, gee, I've forgotten his name. He wrote the book Alterity, uh, not Levinas, but maybe he says it too. But Mark, you know, religion guy, Columbia. Uh, can't remember. Having a senior moment. but uh, So the West, the tendency is to be somewhat uh, Platonist around these things. So that, you know, push comes to shove. If only one of these can be real, the Western traditions tend to say that's the real thing. You know, Plato's cave. The real thing is, is the ideal form of the chair the ideal table is the real table, and these actual tables are the parallel reflections of the real table. So there's the real table, like the tableness, the ideal table, and the individual tables, and this is the real thing. The one is the real thing, the many can't be. And, and Abhidharma Buddhism is doing exactly the opposite. The one is the unreal thing. The real thing is the thing that you can actually touch, see, taste, experience, right? The idea is not the real thing. The vikalpa, the conceptualization is not the real thing. Okay? So, uh, what in terms then of ethics, so one thing to remember, of course, is that ethics has been happening without a self forever because there has never been a self such that it was required for ethics. Now, you might say, Here's a key thing. We have a belief in that self, a false belief in that self. So the self doesn't exist and has never existed. So when no self is not getting rid of something, is not getting rid of a self that you 
had. It's like, you know, it's not like, oh, I started studying Buddhism and they took myself away. It's like, no, dude. It's like you started studying Buddhism, practicing Buddhism, and they took your self-habit away. The self-habit, the self-grasping is there, but the self isn't. So the habit, so you might say, well, the self-habit is necessary for ethics. I, don't, I think there are a lot of ethicists who would say it actually gets in the way, quite possibly, but there might be some people who would agree with that. But the Buddhist standpoint is that, why do we practice ethics? Ethics creates a, it, by the, the ethical lifestyle gives us the capacity to cultivate the kind of meditative states that enable us to have the wisdom to eliminate suffering. So on my reading, and this is not, you know, there are people who are uncomfortable with this interpretation of Buddhist ethics. And they're almost all, they, in my experience, are pretty much all Westerners, really. Ethics is, a, is instrumental in Buddhism. It's not an end in itself. I'm practicing an ethical lifestyle because it, it leads to the alleviation of suffering. I'm not practicing an ethical lifestyle because it's good in itself. Right? So in the philosophical world, we distinguish between, what's, between deontological ethics, where the good is the same as the right. Something's right because it is good as opposed to the idea that it's good because it, it's right because it leads to something good. So ethical practice in Buddhism is much more like that. It's much more kind of consequentialist in flavor. Like, we practice ethics because it leads to the elimination of suffering, not because it's good in itself. Yeah, just. But consciousness, some kind of consciousness has to be experiencing suffering. It may not be the big L, the big S, the unconscious. That's right. So suffering is occurring. That's correct. In this psychophysical bundle of flowing stuff that's flowing together, which is what samsara means. That is, so suffering is occurring there. It's also occurring, you know, in other bundles flowing along. And the goal is to stop the suffering, for sure. And all of those processes, memory, perception, language, all of that has always been going on without there being a controller or a capital S self. Right? So does that make sense? Yeah. One of the difficult intuitions in the Western context for Western ethicists, I think, is that because ethics has been so deeply rooted in certain kinds of monotheist perspectives, like... You know, a lot of the kind of ethical perspective is, is does someone, has, who's to blame or who's to reward? So if there's nobody in charge, then like, you know, who's, who are we going to punish? Uh, and, and so just, I'm going to go off on a tangent for a second. We're already way over, but... Uh, so, for example, I, you can, I can, let's say I'm a real jerk, which maybe I am, and, you know, I get like, I don't know, somebody, somehow, 
I end up with somebody makes a mistake or something or is confused and they give me $100,000 and like that's it. I just got $100,000 or maybe I inherited from an uncle that had no idea where I was, you know. And you might, people might say, oh, you don't deserve that. Right? But in the karma system, it's like deserve is not, it's, it just happens. It's not like there can be an event and then there's like an ethical judgment about whether the event, whether you deserve the event or not. It's like if I throw an apple up and then I walk underneath it and it hits me, do I deserve to get hit in the head? It's just a causal process. But when you separate those out and then it's like you've got a parallel process which is regardless of what's happening causally, what people are experiencing, there's going to be someone making a judgment about whether it's good or bad or whether they deserve it or not. Then you kind of have a, you've got to have somebody who in a sense is kind of standing outside of the causal process, making the judgment and someone who's like over here controlling it and he's the one to blame. Right, so that whole way of thinking about ethics is very deep in the Western tradition and the karma system really, karma system has some of its own issues for sure, but one of the things it doesn't have is that. Where basically you can, base, you can especially the idea then that people can become inherently blameworthy, inherently you know, guilty from the get-go or what have you. Okay, yes? Isn't that a matter of view though? I mean, the, in the Western system it's about reward and punishment, but in the Buddhist view it's about removal of suffering. So that I love the idea of wholesome, that it's the idea that wholesome is leading to freedom and not wholesome is leading to suffering. Yeah, so it's like a more causal, that's my point. It's, and I, I don't want to reduce Western ethics to just reward and punishment, but right? I'm just saying that that's an element that can become very dominant, but... Uh, but yes, the idea like wholesome, unwholesome, kushala, kushala, virtuous, unvirtuous, whatever translation you want to use, it's kind of in a certain way, it's almost more practical, right? If you engage in this kind of lifestyle, these are the kinds of outcomes you're going to have, and this is the kind of world you're going to live in. And so, you know, what do you want? What does this system want? What is, what is good for uh, this system and everyone else? all the other systems and the whole system that we're connected that connects us right so i think that just changes a little bit the whole perspective but we should now stop we are 15 minutes over so let's uh head over to the um, uh to the dharma hall in 15 minutes if you're not too exhausted Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.